Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. Your host here, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today, we approach a very challenging topic, surrogate endpoints in medical oncology and hematology. Are they good? Are they bad? Are they in between? What in the world are these surrogate endpoints and why is there so much friction about surrogate endpoints why there's so much controversy controversy debate yelling screaming about surrogate endpoints it is really important to discuss this topic especially as sometimes we must use the surrogate endpoints i mean look we all recognize that the holy grail what we would like for our patients is to either live longer or to live better. And living longer is usually measuring overall survival, but let's face it, we cannot always rely on overall survival as an endpoint to demonstrate that a drug is effective or an intervention is effective. Why? Because some patients could live 15 years with their disease. An example of this is low-grade non-Hodgkin lymphoma, multiple myeloma, Etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But so it's really important to put things into context. And maybe there are differences between solid tumors and hematologic malignancies. Because of this, I thought it is timely to discuss surrogate endpoints. And I had the pleasure of being introduced to Dr. Rakesh Popat from the United Kingdom through. Dr. Saurabh Jeha in the UK. Now, Saurabh Jeha has been a guest on Healthcare Unfiltered. For those of you who are listening and don't know him, he is a radiologist, which means he's not a doctor, as you know. Okay, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. He's a doctor. He is a physician radiologist, and he introduced me to Rakesh Popat, a myeloma expert in the UK. Uh, I also got to meet uh, uh, Dr. Sanjay Popat, who is a thoracic medical oncologist and who is the brother of Rakesh. So what did we do on Healthcare Unfiltered? We brought the two brothers together to talk to us about surrogate endpoints in hematologic malignancies and in solid tumors. Now, my goal uh, is to let them fight with each other. I don't think it's going to happen because they're actually in completely different fields. But in my view, I was thinking maybe there are different applications to surrogate endpoints in heme malignancies versus solid tumors, in myeloma versus lung cancer. So having the two aspects or the two perspectives on this show is very critical for your listeners to hopefully look at these, um, I would say, nuances when it comes to assessing clinical trials and evaluating whether a surrogate endpoint is indeed uh, uh, reasonable, adequate, uh, and, and we're going to talk about these surrogate endpoints, and we're going to touch on something that is very tenacious, which is uh, the molecular, the minimal residual disease, the molecular aspect of uh, surrogate endpoints, because that is really important. How, how reliable is using the molecular uh, aspect of a disease as a surrogate endpoint to decide that a drug is indeed very effective? Look, this is a very important topic. It's an academic topic. And I'm very pleased to have Dr. Rakesh Popat and Sanjay Popat on Healthcare Unfiltered. They are both first-timers on this podcast, but they will not be the last time that they will come in on this show. So uh, before I air the show that we taped, I'd like to ask you to find the podcast on all podcast outlets and to subscribe to the show, rate the show, and write a brief review. You can watch all of my podcast episodes on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. And please visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com. You will see all of these podcasts, all of the YouTube videos, as well as additional features. Follow me on Twitter and let me know how I'm doing, at Shadi Nabhan, or on Instagram, Shadi underscore Healthcare Unfiltered. Without further ado, doctors, the popats on healthcare unfiltered discussing surrogate endpoints in solid tumors and hematologic malignancies. So Sanjay, we'll start by you first as to who you are, what you do, and, and where you practice and all that good stuff. Yeah, thanks, uh, Chaddy. Uh, I'm Sanjay Popat. I'm a medical oncologist, uh, consultant medical oncologist at the Royal Marsden Hospital. 
uh, based in London, UK, and I'm a thoracic medical oncologist specialising in thoracic malignancies. And uh, my academic affiliation is I'm a professor of thoracic oncology at the Institute of Cancer Research, uh, also in London. So what, what, tell me in the UK, like consultant, what, what, what it's, we don't use that word here. What think, is that? I think the equivalent is uh, attending. Is, is that right? Okay. That's sort of, you know, the, the top of the pyramid. Okay. Okay. And Royal Marsden, I've heard something, a few good things about that place. It's not too shabby. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, it's, I think it's you'd okay. appreciate it. I think you'd appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. It's, it's okay. Uh, and the other Dr. Popat. Yeah, hi, Jerry. Uh, so I'm Rakesh Popat. I, I'm the uh, other Popat of the family. And I'm a hematologist, a hemato-oncologist, in fact, based at University College Hospital in London. I'm an associate professor at University College London. And my main interest is in multiple myeloma. And I chair the UK Myeloma Research Group. This is really wonderful. I'm already getting intimidated by both of you, but I'm going to do my best. Um, we wanted to talk about surrogate endpoints because there's so much. It's a it's a polarizing topic, frankly, in the academic community, and and hopefully we will emerge on the other side of this podcast less polarized and with some common understanding of of steps forwards. So, Sanjay, what are surrogate endpoints for those who are listening and they're trying to understand what are what do we mean by surrogate endpoints? Well, I mean, surrogate endpoints are um, outcomes of clinical trials where we're experimenting on human beings, uh, where traditionally we've used time from starting treatment to time to death or overall survival as the gold standard as to whether a drug works or, not, or an intervention works. Does the intervention or a drug make people live longer? Uh, but because this takes time, we have to wait for people to die. And we're interested in getting highly effective interventions or drugs in earlier. We're looking for other endpoints or outcomes of clinical trial, which might uh, act as a surrogate or a predictor of overall survival benefit. So examples of these are things like response rates or something called uh, progression-free survival or time to metastatic relapse. And there are um, multiple others, but it's, it's another way of getting a drug approved, usually a drug we're talking about in this setting, much earlier than waiting for your cohort patients to die, analyze the results, and then present them at a meeting, and then go through the regulatory, and importantly, reimbursement process, something that you guys in the North America don't have to worry about. Yeah. Sanjay, the, so basically, there's an assumption that these surrogate endpoints you mentioned, few examples of, correlate or translate into better survival? Well, that's the assumption. I mean, we have to remember where this all started from. And this all started from the premise that for a drug to be useful uh, for patients, it has to prolong their life. Uh, now, that's uh, you know a topic in itself uh, to, uh, to debate. And the premise is that a surrogate of that, whichever sur surrogate you, you choose, is an earlier way of predicting that that patient would have lived longer with that new drug or intervention compared to, to not. So the assumption is that the surrogate results in an overall survival advantage. However, you know, as I'm sure we'll debate, uh, that's not necessarily proven with, with many uh, of these surrogate endpoints. And, and, and that is for very good reasons in certain circumstances. Uh, so the assumption is that it will improve overall survival, but it's not necessarily uh, the case. I guess it's a bit like saying, you know, how effective is a parachute at preventing one dying from leaping out of an uh, aircraft? Um, but, you know, that's an assumption we can debate as well. So, Rakesh, what I heard from Sanjay in terms of surrogate endpoints in the solid tumors in general, you're talking response rates, you're talking progression-free survival, we'll go over that a little bit, and time to metastasis or something like that. Well, liquid tumors are a little bit different. Myeloma is an example. It's not like you always have a, I guess, like a, you know, a mass that you're really looking at shrinkage. How? Tell me about the type of surrogate points in hematologic malignancies. Feel free to use myeloma as an example. And is that similar? Any any other comments to what Sanjay mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some strong parallels between medical oncology and hematology. Again, thinking about what is our overall endpoint, it is overall survival or an improvement in quality of life. So those are the two 
final endpoints that we want to be able to measure. And the question is, how do you do that earlier? So in hematological cancers, again, our main primary endpoint or surrogate would be progression-free survival. Um, and the assumption is that a PFS benefit would correlate with an improvement in OS. Now we do have other ones, and uh, many of us will be looking at overall response rates as a marker of uh, PFS and therefore that of overall survival. And more recently, the big debate that we've been having, Chaddy, is about the use of minimal residual disease. And the advantage in, in liquid tumors is that we can readily measure MRD by means of a bone marrow biopsy, or indeed we're trying to now do that using peripheral blood. And the idea is that an early endpoint such as MRD might then uh, develop as a surrogate for overall survival, but it's still not yet fully developed. So to, to recap, surrogate endpoints are these, you know, endpoints that we think they help patients. Yeah. But we may not be sure. Sure. Uh, Sanjay, is it fair to say that the interest in surrogate points came about from the success in cancer treatments because thankfully patients don't die that fast? Yeah, I think that's, that's fair. And I think the other thing we have to think about is the types of drugs we're using. I mean, our clinical trials and uh, our measure of success is based on chemotherapy, right? Which is what we've all grown up uh, been educated about, but the reality is now in, in in early 2020 that that's really not what we're using most of the time, right? We're using other drugs. We're using targeted therapies, kinase inhibitors. We're using uh, monoclonal antibodies. We're using immune checkpoint inhibitors. Rakish is using cell therapies, right? So do these have the same kinetics of benefit? Are the traditional endpoints that we've been hankering after, which is a improvement in length of life in, with metastatic disease, necessarily uh, the, the, the right marker. And things become even more complicated in the world of solid tumors when you are dealing with curable disease or radically treatable disease or resectable disease. In, in that setting, we've often been looking at overall survival for the primary endpoint of a trial, but actually, should we be looking at earlier endpoints such as disease-free survival or event-free survival to get a highly active uh, drug or a regime uh, out there to patients earlier uh, if we don't know that it actually makes people live longer or whether we should be withholding it until patients are in the unfortunate position of relapse with metastatic disease. And so life has become way more complicated because of the more complex, highly effective drugs that we have available. And then when you combine that with a fragmentation of the disease types that we're looking at, we now have different diseases, all within perhaps the same label of lung cancer or myeloma, but maybe extremely rare on the basis of molecular um, uh, features. And if we combine new drugs with rarity of disease, often we have to think of an earlier way to measure that these drugs are, are effective. Rakesh, why is there so much uh, controversy over surrogate endpoints? Like why, you know, you yeah. talk to people, some people never believe in it. Like, why is there so much, they're almost polarizing medical topic. It, completely. It, it, it's a very, very controversial area and, and, and one I'm glad we're debating. So I think the biggest problem that we have, and my name is, I think is a great example to demonstrate this, is that progression-free survival or indeed overall response rate does not necessarily correlate with overall survival. And, and I can give you some good examples uh, in the myeloma literature recently. So, so one of the trials I was involved in is, is something called Bellini. But Bellini was a phase three clinical trial using a novel drug, venetoclax, which is an inhibitor to BCL2. Uh, for patients with multiple myeloma. This was a phase three trial, double-blind, uh, randomized, placebo-controlled study, so a high-quality study. And essentially what we found was that the progression-free survival was superior with the experimental arm. And everyone thought, great, you know, this drug is working very well in the combination. But the problem then came was that the overall survival was inferior with the experimental arm. Now, the reality is that even today, we still do not fully understand why the, the overall survival was inferior. We think 
that the, the reality was that some of the patients that did not have that genetic subgroup uh, that was beneficial uh, died either rapidly due to clonal evolution and tumor progression, or they died because of severe infections. We don't know. But the bottom line is that the PFS benefit was not shown out with overall survival benefit. Now, that's an example um, of a drug where we think would have been effective and maybe different because of molecular subgroups, such as uh, Sanjay was just mentioning. The other problem that we're getting is the increased toxicity with drugs. So what we're seeing in some cases is, is an improvement in progression-free survival, but then when you then wait and see what the overall survival comes, there is no improvement. And indeed, there may well be an inferior or concern with overall survival. Now, recently, Chaddy, there was the ODAC review of a drug called melflufen in multiple myeloma. Now, melflufen was uh, granted uh, accelerated approval by the FDA based on an improvement, although marginal, in progression-free survival for patients with relapsed refractory myeloma. What the OS uh, survival data demonstrated was no uh, benefit, and the FDA, in fact, uh, raised concerns that the overall survival may be detrimental. And so this is why it's so controversial, because in some ways, PFS does show improvements in OS. Again, in myeloma, the CASTOR trial of daratinumab velcade dexamethasone for patients with relapsed myeloma shows both a PFS and an overall survival benefit. And that's great, we should be using that combination. But I've just cited two examples where the converse is not true for different reasons, I should say. So this is why it's very controversial and we still haven't quite figured out whether we can truly believe that PFS is a surrogate marker for OS. Yeah, these are uh, sobering uh, a couple of uh, studies that you actually cited, but let's step back a little bit, Sanjay, and just try to think um, broadly. Is there any way, any way, that you believe, and feel free to use thoracic oncology, that you can rely on overall survival always in every single trial, whether it's adjuvant or metastatic disease, to demonstrate effectiveness? Because if you want to be purist, right, you say, okay, I don't want to do any of that stuff. I want to be very pure. Do you really feel in 2022, 2023, this is doable? Well, anybody in the field of thoracic oncology that says that overall survival has to be the primary endpoint for every single trial is living in cloud cuckoo land, right? We have, uh, and that's a British phrase, I guess. We have, um, you, you know, we have lifespan, you know, in my field, which has increased in certain sectors from a median of one year to more than five years. Okay, so how are we going to really prove that a early intervention is going to improve overall survival when you've got so many post-progression therapies which come into the uh, argument. Um, we've got diseases which are super rare where it's next to impossible to do randomized trials in the first place because the uh, prevalence of the condition is incredibly rare. I mean, a good example of this, you know, being rep positive lung cancer trials are ongoing, but you know, do that, are they really needed? Uh, so so I, I'm going to take your argument. If yeah. you cannot use overall survival, when do you use it? You, yeah, what you're sure. telling me is we cannot use it all the time. I'll Correct. take that. Yeah, Give me think, the scenarios where you must use it and the scenarios you can you don't need to use it. Yeah. So I think, you know, uh, at, at this stage, I think the the uh, the thoracic world is united in saying in a stage four metastatic non-oncogene addicted uh, trial. Uh, usually we're talking about frontline lung cancer, uh, not molecularly driven uh, trials where we're evaluating immunotherapy um, as the backbone and we're either looking at different immune checkpoint inhibitors or combinations thereof. In that setting, because of the way immunotherapy works and the post-progression benefits we see, then overall survival has to be the primary endpoint. Uh, and in those uh, settings, we've got disease which is common. You know, we can recruit to these trials. Uh, progression is an arguable event. Uh, we don't really understand the impact of progression when it happens in immune checkpoint uh, inhibitor therapy. And many of the uh, benefit that you get actually occurs post-progression, if we look at the trial uh, curves. So in those, in those settings, overall survival, I think, has to be uh, uh, still the uh, uh, primary endpoint and the preferred 
uh, endpoint. And indeed, that's what the regulators and clinicians uh, are, are agreed is the right way forward. But there are many other settings where that's not the case. So Rakesh, similar, same question. Uh, what scenarios where you as an academician and as a researcher and a clinician, you say, you know what, if I'm not seeing overall survival advantage, I'm not buying this. And which scenarios you say, I'm willing to overlook that because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So, so in hematological cancers, I the, the survival is far superior to the survival that, that Sanjay, you've just quoted in lung cancers. So um, particularly in multiple myeloma, where you need to wait almost 10 years to get a readout from fr a frontline study in terms of overall survival, it becomes incredibly challenging. So I kind of see it in terms of frontline and late relapse. If you take a patient at late relapse where there is a very limited post-progression treatment, then I think it's perfectly valid to use overall survival as your endpoint to use a drug. And that's what I would advocate that, yes, we can accept an accelerated approval on a PFS, but we must get an overall survival advantage for the late multiply relapse disease. Now, if you move to the frontline setting, then I think that's incredibly difficult because the whole scenario is predicated upon your post-progression therapies. And as new, newer immunotherapies such as CAR-T therapy, bispecific T-cell engagers are coming through in hematological cancers, the complete uh, transformation of disease is being borne out. And you will start to see, very, it's going to be more and more difficult to, to demonstrate that. So, and, and just, just to give you a, a, another example recently, the determination trial was a study that caused uh, big news in ASCO uh, very recently. It was a frontline trial for myeloma. Patients were randomized against an autologous stem cell transplant versus continuous ongoing treatment with RVD. Substantial improvement in PFS was seen but at this moment in time, no improvement in overall survival. So does that mean we should stop doing a stem cell transplant, something that we've been doing for 30 years? The answer is no, we're not gonna stop doing a stem cell transplant on that basis because there was a substantial improvement in PFS and still tells us that is that it is a good treatment for frontline patients. And perhaps we need to follow up our patients for 15 years to get that OS benefit. So I think for the frontline setting, it's very difficult to, to fully uh, uh, think that an overall survival uh, benefit is going to give you the full story. And Rakesh, I mean, the other thing is, and, and Sanjay commented on that a little bit, but this post-progression therapy, right? I mean, in, I mean, most studies I'm aware of, and please correct me if I'm wrong, most studies I'm aware of, they don't really dictate what you're going to do post-progression. Right. I mean, you have the randomization and then at progression, usually treatment at the investigator's discretion. And then you end up having this like hodgepodge of things. And how do you even you can try to do a very statistical manipulation and be smart about it, which is I, I call it usually cooking the books. But um, I mean, how do you, you can't account for that. So I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the real world, right? I mean, that's what what happens um, in the real world, and this is why the, the, this is the beauty of, of of trials, right? People have argued on on social media that you should have A followed by the B versus B followed by A, right? So you're actually looking at the true sequence. That doesn't happen in real life, right? Because people fall off the perch because they get brain disease, they get sick, they get septic, they get all sorts of other complications, which means they can't get it. So, you know, we're, tra we're trained on what's called the intention to treat principle, which is we start off with a group of patients and we see what happens to them regardless of the treatments that they get. And it's all about what you're optimizing in your frontline decision-making, which results in the outcome thereafter. So yeah, it would be useful to get A followed by B versus B followed by A, but actually that's, that's real. That's not made, that's made up, right? That doesn't happen in real life. So actually the trials that we have actually do represent real life because it is a hodgepodge of what people get. I can, I can bet your bottom dollar that what your lung cancer patients are getting in your center are very different to what they're getting in my center following first line therapy. And that's all to do with the great richness and variety of what we have in medicine. And the assumption that if you take A, you are going to get B afterwards at progression, or if you get B, you will get A after progression, 
is anti-real world because you may get A and that progression, like you said, you just, your performance test is bad. You cannot get B and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, and you know, we've learned this in in, in the lung cancer world um, very effectively. I mean, one of the the, the trials that folk have uh, argued about a lot is the Flora trial in EGFR mutant patients, where patients were treated with first line osimertinib versus a non third generation EGFR kinase inhibitor, and the and there was a peer, huge PFS and then a large OS benefit. And criticism of the trial was that, well, look, patients in the control arm, the majority of them didn't get osimertinib thereafter. And look, that's the real, that's the real life. That's the whole point of doing the trial is that you start off with your best drug so that you live longer, right? Otherwise, the, the sequence, whilst it may be an academic great thing to it to have and investigate in the real world may not actually occur because of these issues like reduction in in performance status and in in my field um uh, molecular transformational brain metastases so you know for for me uh, you know we have to we have to just deal with the trial with the patients that we have with the best treatment up front and see what happens thereafter you can't mandate too many things post progression so it is yeah go ahead rakesh yeah, Charlie, if I was going to just bring in the uh, the myeloma side, because this is a problem that we're currently facing with our reimbursement, because, um, and I'll give an example. So the tourmaline study was looking at exasimib with revlimid and dexamethasone versus placebo revlimid and dexamethasone, and we saw PFS benefits, but there is currently no overall survival benefit. Now, in terms of reimbursement, what happens in the UK, and this is probably mirrored in a number of different European countries is that reimbursement will occur when a PFS benefit is found. So that is the surrogate endpoint. And then uh, full reimbursement or, or unconditional reimbursement is confirmed once the overall survival benefit has been demonstrated. Now, with this particular study, that an overall survival benefit was not demonstrated. And so the, what we are now expecting is that this treatment will be removed from the funding pathway. However, when you look at the post-progression treatments, what you find is that more patients received an effective treatment daratinumab in the uh, control arm compared to the experimental arm. And then if you look at the sister study, which was performed in China, where daratinumab was not available, an overall survival benefit is found in the same study. Now, how do you unpick all of this and go to the, uh, the payer, which in the UK is, is nice, to try and tease this all apart and to see if you can convince them that there may well have been an overall survival benefit that was missed because of multiple confounding factors. <laughs> it's it's a complete hodgepodge. And I, I really don't know where to go on this. Yeah. No, I mean, this is, I, I think we're all in agreement that it is not practical for a variety of reasons to be that, you know, strict that I want overall survival for every single study and every single scenario. Um, so, and I like Sanjay mentioned a couple of examples where he mandates that and some examples he said he's okay with it. But I wanna go back before I move on to the second topic, uh, which is quality of life as a surrogate endpoint. Um, to uh, an example that Sanjay gave, which is, you know, when you have these rare uh, tumors based on molecular subtypes, right? I mean, I always joke when I was, in training, uh, lung cancer was either really small cell or non-small cell. That was really the quiz I would tell residents. And now, goodness, there's like 20 types. So, uh, Sanjay, are you saying that for the molecularly driven tumors, you don't need a comparator arm? No, I'm not saying that. Um, I think it depends on the prevalence of the molecular um uh, driven tumor. So some molecular driven tumor is actually relatively common, right? EGFR mutation in Japan, 60% of what they see. Um, in parts of Europe, 5% of what you see. 5% of a big problem, lung cancer, is still quite a large number of patients. Is it feasible to do randomized trials in frontline EGFR mutant lung cancer? Yeah. Should you do that? Yeah, definitely. Is overall survival the best endpoint? No. Uh, Progression-free survival in the first line setting, I think, is by far the best uh, endpoint because of these issues about crossover, about long survival, as Rakesh uh, and you, you've alluded to. When we start getting more and more rarer subsets, then things start becoming more problematic. So we start talking about um, ROS1 fusions, 1% prevalence, uh, rep fusions, 1% prevalence. These are rare, okay? And these are aggressive tumors. And 
you know, we live in a world where we have highly effective therapies in single arm studies, which have shown, you know, big response rates in excess of 70% with uh, progression free survivals uh, in excess of nine months, right, where we know that chemotherapy would be way in inferior in a, a putative uh, academic scenario. So do we really need to do randomized studies? So the FDA clearly says no, right? Because it gives these drugs accelerated approval and you guys use them uh, frontline without a problem. The European regulator is much more um, cautious and still um, uh, regards these molecular driven subsets to ideally undergo randomized studies. So whilst they have approved ROS1 patients, they haven't approved RET patients in the frontline setting and have mandated a first-line trial. Now, is it feasible to run a first-line first line trial for RET-positive patients? I would argue it's, it's difficult. So, you know, Roche uh, and we as the academic community are trying to do these, but it's, it's certainly not straightforward. And if we do get it, we're not going to get patients from North America because they'll all have access, right? Why would you be randomizing? Well, but it? even in the U.S., if you get accelerated approval by, by law, you must do this confirmatory study. And I think it becomes very difficult to do when you have the small fusion. Uh, so yeah. people become creative and do synthetic real-world arms and, yeah. and, and historical controls because you really, oh. I mean, and you can, I can make an argument, you know, look, look, I mean, we all want to be very pure academicians, but my God, if you have a targeted therapy with a very high response rate and you have that mutation, do you really want to be randomized to carbotaxol or whatever it is? Yeah, uh, versus... I mean, this is really what, what you know what we say. You know, three of us around the table, right? If one of us had a ret fusion, right? Would you want to have chemo? Would you want to have a ret inhibitor? I think each of right. us would want to have a ret inhibitor, right? Same thing for NTRAC, right? Each of us would have want to have a track inhibitor. So it's crazy to to mandate that we want to have a randomized trial. The reason that we that the regulators say that they want to have it is, for a, for a start, it's not the clinicians that are demanding a randomized trial, it's the regulators that are demanding a randomized trial. And the European regulator is demanding a randomized trial because they don't know the magnitude of the clinical benefit and hence what the risk benefit ratio is and that will obviously drive reimbursement and so reimbursement will come into uh, this as well because at the moment we're having to model the uh, PFS and OS benefits using these these methods as you say like synthetic control arms to try and figure out what benefit that these single arm studies are, are doing but you know for, for me I, I think it's crazy not to do this when but here's, here's the catch this is when you have a highly effective drug with big efficacy, big response rates, big uh, progression-free survival, and a rare patient population. An example of where actually I still think we need to do uh, randomized uh, trials is in the KRAS G12C uh, setting in lung cancer, which is actually relatively uh, common, where the drugs you know, are probably better than chemo, but they're not dynamite in the same scope of where we are with ALK and RET, etc. And, you know, there I do think we do need to have uh, randomized trials to really just to give, it, give, give us a better idea on what the drugs are bringing to the equation. I love the idea that we are, you know, that, you know, don't, you know, one hat doesn't fit all. And I really, yeah. if there's anybody who is listening to this, hopefully there are actually, but, you know, it's really important to recognize this. Rakesh, there are others out there who would say, okay, if you cannot demonstrate overall survival, you must, you must demonstrate that patients are feeling better. Yeah. Because the progression-free survival in solid tumors is completely arbitrary. Um, you know, 20%, uh, 30%, you're measuring with the ruler doing all of this. And, you know, in in hematologic malignancies, it's a little bit more difficult, frankly, because you don't always have measurable disease. We'll talk about that when we speak on the molecular thing. But tell me about this, you know, how patients feel better. Are we doing quality of life scales? How accurate are they? Do patients really fill them? Is it us filling review of systems, which is nonsense? I mean, what, tell me about that. Yeah, I think this is an area which is completely underserved. And, and we ought to raise this uh, a lot more. I mean, you take a phase three study, a regulation study, patients will fill in the standard QL questionnaires, the EORTC, uh, the questionnaires are the standard that we use. Um, and 
you get the results at the end and they're always a secondary endpoint that's tucked away in the low impact journal uh, <laughs> afterwards. And, and typically every QL that I've seen, they're often quite similar. And, and you sit there trying to work out, but actually if there's an improvement in, in overall response rate, an improvement in progression-free survival, shouldn't the patient be feeling better? And that's not the case. Often in, in the ones that I've seen, they overlap each other. Um, I haven't actually seen much in the way of a detriment in terms of, of QOL uh, in the studies that I've seen. So I, I think there's a couple of things. The first thing is I don't think we do them well enough. The second thing is that I don't think that the questionnaires that we have are sensitive enough. I think the QOL questionnaires are quite a blunt tool and they don't fully reflect the improvements in quality of life and symptomatology that our patients have. And number three, I think QOL should be a much higher endpoint than a, a late secondary endpoint. I would love to see a study where we had a co-primary endpoint of progression-free survival and QOL uh, with your OS as your key secondary endpoint, um, but we, I've never seen that. You know, I mean, Sanjay, the reason the reason I bring this quality of life issue, not obviously it's important. We all know the importance of this. We don't need to sell that part, but progression-free survival you know, it's really this 20% and 30%. Um, somebody probably, somebody had a conference in Hawaii and they were sipping wine and like, you know, 20% seems reasonable. But it's completely arbitrary. So that's yeah. why it gets so much bad rap because like, you know, who, who the heck cares about 20% or 22%? And that's why folks appropriately demand, look, these percentages are arbitrary. We need to make sure that patients are feeling better. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, you know, PFS is a very arbitrary uh, judgment, right? I mean, who, what, who determines whether 21% is bad and, um, you know, 19% is good, right? So it's, it's complete madness. Uh, and in some tumors, it's so difficult to measure measurable disease anyway that, you know, a few millimeters here and there, that, you know, there goes your progression event, right? Right. So, uh, you know, within the, then the uh, regulators have demanded we have independent radiology review because the investigators are all all biased because we know what the, the patient's on. And so you go around this merry circle of, of doing whatever's required. So quality of life, I think, is, is is really important. But, you know, as Rakesh has said, you know, the, the, the fundamental challenge that we have is that the instruments that we use, you know, you know, God bless the URTC because it's come up with these great validated tools are just not discriminatory enough for us to make enough sense out of them. I, I've seen so many trials where you've got what looks like a pretty toxic drug. You know, we know that the drug is toxic because we've used it in phase phase one, phase two, and here it is in phase three. And you look at the quality of life and you're thinking, actually, that's not reflecting, um, you know, what my patient experience has been uh, so far. And it's not bringing out the salient features of the problems of the drug. And that's not that's not a problem of the trial design. It's a it's a problem of the instruments that we we, we have. Uh, you know, a good ex example is like CTCAE, right? This is the standard instruments that we use to determine the toxicities of, of, of a study. Who determines whether the adverse event that we're reporting is treatment related or not? I mean, it's a judgment call, right? Which is made between the sponsor and the investigator that's, that's reporting that. And are our CTCAE terms actually clinically relevant these days when we're using non-chemotherapy drugs? I mean, for IO, they're probably not. And certainly for a lot of the targeted therapies, I would definitely say that they're, they're not. Um, so we, we definitely need better metrics to quantify the subjective improvement or not that patients feel. Uh, and there's a variety of ways that that, that, that might be done. But the, the measures that we have at the moment are not really up to the standards that we'd like. So then, then the, 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 the main issue, Rakesh, is now we're obviously not too happy with progression-free survival. We realize that quality of life is good, but we don't measure it very well for a variety of reasons that you both outlined. And we understand that overall survival is the gold standard, but we cannot really rely on it all the time. So now we're not even doing this. We're going to go on the molecular level. So people are going to be even more skeptical. Like you're telling me because you detect a clone that I can't even see anywhere on a slide or wherever it is, 
that's going to be enough. I mean, you could imagine that the field would be like, wait a minute here. I mean, that you're taking it to the extreme. Take us through the molecular part because analogous in solid tumors, I think an example to that would be, you know, could be cell-free DNA or whatever you want to call it. But, but in the hematologic malignancies world, you can understand why folks are very skeptical about minimal residual disease, no? Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, this is an area that that we've been trying to develop and bring forward. Um, what I would say is that uh, minimal residual disease uh, has been consistently shown to correlate with overall survival, and we can see that in myeloma, CLL, and ALL. So it it's been demonstrated, I th think, fairly broadly across hematological malignancies, particularly the, the liquid ones, that minimum residual disease, either by bone marrow biopsy testing or, or peripheral blood testing does correlate with overall survival. Now, there are some problems with it. The first is the technique that you're using, because because you're right, we're, going, we're talking about molecular testing now, okay? So we're not now talking about a PFS. You've got to make sure that your technique is high sensitivity enough. And the higher the level of sensitivity, the, the more robustly you will correlate with overall survival. The second uh, problem you have is the quality of the samples. And this is a major, major problem we've got, um, is that if you've got a bad, poor quality sample, then you're not going to get a clear MRD uh, result. And then what do you do with it? The third point is the timing of your sample. When is the optimal time to take your MRD time point? And is a single MRD analysis adequate as a surrogate marker of overall survival? And I would argue that you need multiple time points and you need to demonstrate sustained MRD negativity. So in the myeloma world, interestingly, we're now talking about how do we assess cure, okay? We've got PFSs of 10 years plus in the frontline setting. We think that overall survival is gonna be in excess of 15 years. How do we define a cure? And that now there's this debate of saying, well, actually, can we have a surrogate marker, molecular surrogate marker of a cure? And, and can that uh, definition be sustained MRD negativity at 10 to the minus six for two years as a surrogate marker of cure? I don't know. It's very, very debatable and very, very skeptical if you can call that a cure. But that's kind of where we're heading, because what we've got to try and work out is where are these new fields of cellular therapies going to take us to? Because the, the, the PFS is going to be astoundingly long. So, so yes, MRD is important. But another caveat, I must say, with molecular therapies is that we know across hematological cancers is that there are major sampling issues that I alluded to. And so the strength of MRD testing is, is made greater by the use of cross-sectional imaging. But, so, but here, but here are but the issue with MRD. If I may, two things I'd like you to comment on. One, nobody is arguing that they are prognostic. Yeah. No one. We know that if you're MRD positive, you are going to do worse than MRD negative disease. But the argument is twofold. Number one, if you're MRD positive, does it make a difference if you treat at the time of MRD positivity? versus waiting until clinical relapse. To my knowledge, we don't know, so I'd like you to comment on that. And the second thing, if we really assume that MRD negativity correlates with improved survival, what we risk is over-treatment. Then what you're gonna see is a lot of people are going to get treated until MRD negativity, and the fear of that, toxicity, cost, and maybe you are treating folks that may have not even relapsed for 10 years. Okay, so, so these are all, all very good points. And, and I think the second bit that you need to bring into this is the clinical risk of the disease. Um, and, and again, we are very polarized in our views on this. Now, some doctors you'll speak to will say, actually, MRD negativity is the be all and, and end all, and you should treat for until MRD negativity, albeit with that increased risk of uh, expense and toxicities. The second factor is how about your risk, your biological risk? Now, typically we correlate that by genetic risk in hematological cancers, either by FISH, gene expression profiling, or, or PCR. 
And, and that's really, I think, what you're getting at, Charlie. The question is that if you have a good risk disease or standard risk disease by genetics, do you really need to achieve that MRD negativity? Or will your patient still do well with a low level of MRD positivity? And I think that data is still controversial. And that also speaks to the point about what should you do if you relapse from MRD negativity, because you're absolutely right. If you step in, as soon as the patient flips from MRD neg to MRD pos, then they haven't progressed in terms of criteria. And if you're intervening, of course, your, your PFS is going to be better because you only had a small molecular signal in terms of disease. So you're going to demonstrate an improvement in PFS. But crucially, is that going to detect an improvement in overall survival? And I don't know whether that's going to be the case. There are studies actually looking at this. And in fact, I was, I was talking to my colleague in Norway who's, who's running this study. And the major problem he's facing is that he's going to have to wait 10 years before he gets a result. And again, oh. it's a real problem. And we don't know. But I think with high risk disease, perhaps you should treat MRD negativity. And with high risk disease, perhaps you should treat a flip from MRD neg to pos, knowing that you are going to inflict more toxic disease and more expensive drugs. But you know that that patient's going to do very badly because they have high risk biological disease. It's an area that could be studied for high-risk disease in a randomized fashion, I presume, but I don't know if that's being done right now or not. Um, it is? No, it is. It, it is actually. So, so, so as I said, it's interesting because different groups are doing completely different things. Um, the, the French group in myeloma have decided that MRD uh, is the ultimate answer and our patients are being treated according to MRD, irrespective of, of biological risk. The UK has taken a slightly different approach and we're merging both together. So that standard risk and high risk dis dis disease are being treated differently according to their MRD status. And we'll wait and see what the results so, show. Sanjay, you know, um, 10 years ago, probably if we talk about MRD in solid tumors, we'd be laughed at. Um, not the case anymore. I mean, I think it's still behind hematologic malignancies. We we all recognize that. But draw some analogies between what Rakesh said to the molecular. What are you guys doing in solid tumors on the molecular front? And do you yeah. really see this is evolving into where this becomes an endpoint, you know, achieving MRD negativity? You see it monitoring. There's a lot happening in the um, liquid biopsy front and, and all of that. There's a lot going on, um, and uh, it's mainly around cell-free DNA or ctDNA uh, uh, using different technologies. Um, and I'm going to divide the answer into the metastatic setting and in the curative receptive setting because we're using them uh, uh, differently. So the first thing is that they're, they're not very well established, and, and still we're lacking uh, um, a lot of data apart from certain, certain scenarios. So in the metastatic setting, I think what's very clear is that some patients who shed their ctDNA do worse than those that don't shed ctDNA, and patients who clear their ctDNA with systemic therapy do better than patients that don't uh, shed their ctDNA. So the big question is, can we consolidate those patients who have not cleared their ctDNA with traditional therapy with more treatment? So you start them on treatment A, assuming they're shedding in the first place, you see what their ctDNA does, and then at time particular time point, if they've not cleared it and they're still shedding, then you get randomized to more intensive consolidation or not. And, and there's, there's, a, there's a few academic studies ongoing in the US looking at this. I think this is really the, the, the major point where we're going to take things further in the metastatic setting, because we have our established paradigms of, of you know, we know what drug to use for which biomarker. But the key issue is who needs more and more drugs, right? We're talking about just adding more and more to the cocktail. There'll be some patients who do very well anyway. We can't easily pick them out according to the molecular status that Rakesh has talked about in myeloma uh, that we can do uh, in at least thoracic malignancies. We, we have some biomarkers, but they're a bit imperfect. And so ctDNA clearance stands out as one of the uh, a potential to do this. But it's problematic because, you know, what 
what defines what level of ctDNA you look at, right? You know, one manufacturer's ctDNA assay will be different in terms of sensitivity to another. And, you know, what, what are we looking at? Are we looking at fusions or SNVs? We're looking at overall variant allele fraction, et cetera. So there are lots of technological issues which um, bring bear this to mind. The, the, the area where I think we're probably going to be using it more is in the post-resection <clears throat> setting. So this is a patient who's had their cancer resected. And, uh, you know, we would usually be giving them chemotherapy after resection or not, depending on their standard risk um, profile based on TNM scores, usually sometimes biological scores. And, and then the key issue is in an uncertain patient, does MRD positivity or not define whether you need adjuvant chemotherapy or adjuvant immunotherapy uh, or adjuvant TKI? Uh, so that's one area. And we've seen a really positive result uh, in uh, colon cancer at ASCO this year where MRD positivity did determine whether you benefited from adjuvant uh, chemo or not. I think that's that's already for prime time. But other 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 diseases at the moment aren't. Lung, urothelial cancers, not, not necessarily quite there with MRD. And I think we, we need to evaluate that further. The, the, the other setting is you're following up a patient. They've had their curative resection. They've had their adjuvant chemotherapy. And then you're following them up with MRD. And then they flip from being MRD negative to MRD positive. But yet you've got nothing that you can see on a CT. T scan or a PET scan. What do you do in that scenario? So, you know, you may argue that MRD has picked up your relapse six to nine months earlier than it would have been picked up by traditional imaging criteria, because you can't see a lump at that point. But what are you going to do about that? We don't really have any data which say that treating on the basis of flipping negative to positive MRD actually does anything other than just panics the patient for nine months more than they would have done, right? So I, th I think MRD is exciting. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to see what Rakesh and his colleagues are up to, but it's work in progress. And I think we, as the academic community, need to, need to uh, build on that data a lot more. You know, one of the biggest challenges I see in evaluating MRD and trying to conduct trials in both sides, and I'm curious about your thoughts uh, on this, is anytime you want to design a study to treat, let's say, early uh, at MRD positivity versus late at the time of clinical relapse, there must be an assumption that you are going to use the same therapy. I mean, frankly, if you're going to use different treatment, it's not going to work. And, and the and the the problem is that you don't have that time to clinical relapse and you don't know what patients, you know, if you're going to take you two years to treat, you know, gosh, it could be very different therapy. So, so in the studies of MRD positivities, how are you guys in those two disciplines, heme malignancies and solid tumors accounting for this? Is this being studied early therapy versus delayed therapy? I think it's a reasonable question. And I think it's a very ethical question to ask early therapy versus delayed therapy at the time of MRD positivity, but you must use the same treatment in both arms. So in the, in the solid tumor world, I think that's less of an issue than it may be in the hematological world because the timeframes are not necessarily that long, right? We're usually talking about six, nine months. Okay. And that's the sort of median timeframe between flipping from negative to positive to then finding uh, measurable disease on a scan, right? We're not talking about two years, five years, okay. right? So in that sort of setting, your probability of patient deteriorating and not receiving the planned therapy that you had at time of MRD's flip is pretty minimal, right? You will lose some because of attrition for all the usual reasons, right, that we talked about, but it's not a big loss. We don't have huge numbers of trials looking at this. Uh, you know, there are a few. In the lung world, we had two great AstraZeneca-sponsored studies, Mermaid 1 and 2, but the design was not really accounting for where we are currently with adjuvant IO, and so they've been um, uh, paused, and I hope they get redesigned and, and relaunched in a better manner. Uh, but we we are lacking a lot of data in in this scenario. I'll just come back right to say our gynae colleagues were looking at CA125 for many years, right after after curative surgery. And there's a pivotal study many many years ago at ASCO presidential se uh, session many years ago, which showed that um, treating on CA125. Uh, 
uh, relapse versus measurable disease made no difference in overall survival. So again, the, the question is, you can you can prove that, but you know, what's what's your endpoint going to be? Is it going to be PFS? Is it going to be OS? You know, what's going to be meaningful? And and there's going to be a lot of lot of difficulties in teasing apart this data. How about in myeloma, Rakesh? Yeah, so, so so I think it depends on how you design your trial because there are two different trials that are looking at this. One um, in the Norwegian group and one in the US, and they're, and they're doing things differently. So the Norwegian group are, are doing the purest route, which is you take your patient, you give them initial treatment, they achieve MRD negativity, you wait until you flip to MRD positivity, and then you either treat that patient or you randomize not to treat that patient. Now, if you're going to do it that way around, it's impossible to give the patient the same treatment because so much time has elapsed at that time that anything could happen. In the US study, um, they're not starting at the very beginning. They're simply saying, right, take a patient who you know is MRD neg, and then let's take them onto the study when they flip into MRD positivity. Now, if you do it that way around, then yes, you can have the same treatment uh, because you're taking patients either when they enter at MRD positivity or whether they enter at relapse. But the whole problem with that type of approach is that you can't control what happened at the front end. So you've got a very heterogeneous population being treated in different ways, different biologies, who are then treated in a homogeneous way at uh, uh, with homogeneous treatment at relapse. So I think both of them are problematic, and I'm not sure either of them are going to answer the question. So yeah, it, it, it's a bit of a minefield trying to work this out. It, it reminds me actually of some older data that's been published, which is are treating in myeloma upon either biochemical progression or a clinical relapse. And what that data shows is that if you treat a biochemical progression, your outcomes are better than a clinical relapse. But I think that's an inherently biased way of doing it. And of course, that's going to show you a, a benefit. So we have to get away from that approach. It depends how you define the benefit, because you got the lead time bias suddenly between, you know, if you if you treat based on a blood test, uh, yeah, it's very difficult. So I, I want to try to come up just to, you know, as, as we finish this and just uh, um, just like few, I don't know, pearls or common grounds, because I don't think we're going to resolve the controversies of surrogate endpoints. So I want to try to come up with maybe like few items in each discipline that should not be controversial, where, you know what, look, this is how it is. Let's, these are not controversial. And then finish with the controversial areas where, which hopefully will be resolved in the next couple of years. Um, although frankly, if everything is resolved, uh, I can't do podcasts. So I'd like to still keep uh, doing this. So far you're even, by the way, I mean, in terms of, I'm not keeping score who's, who's smarter than the other. Uh, but certainly, Rakesh, you excel in thoracic oncology, and uh, Sanjay excels in heme malignancies. So, Sanjay, can we come up in solid tumors? I don't know with few things where you really feel that folks should stop arguing about. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, metastatic immunotherapy-based uh, trials overall stand overall survival is the gold standard, and I don't think that should really change. And I think pretty much everybody agrees with that. Even the regulators and the drug companies agree with that, right? So I don't think that's that's really uh, arguable. Um, in the sort of uh, oncogene-addicted uh, space in diseases where we have these, um, progression-free survival has been accepted by the regulator uh, as... Uh, appropriate for a um, drug approval. And I think for most uh, drug um, genetic aberration combinations where you've got high effic efficacy, I think that's, that's absolutely fine. Um, and, you know, the more prevalent the um, genotype, the more I would argue that you do need to have a comparable arm, you know, just to make, make, make it certain that we are achieving uh, a, a benefit. And then we get to the more controversial areas and the more controversial areas are, I think, in the curable setting, because in the curable setting in solid tumors, we've really been basing overall survival as our gold standard. And in recent years with the advent of adjuvant immunotherapy or in lung cancer, preoperative 
chemoimmunotherapy, we're using event-free survival or disease-free survival as a surrogate endpoint. Is, is, that, is that really a gold standard? I think that's an area of ongoing discussion. Um, uh, the regulators seem to be approving it, but I think it depends a lot on the magnitude of benefit that we're seeing. Rakesh? Yeah, so I don't think there's there's ever going to be alignment in the world of myeloma, you know. So so I think, Charlie, there's no fear of you never ending your podcast if you invite myeloma <laughs> speakers on board. <laughs> I mean, my view on this really has to be that for patients with an expected sh- brief or shortened overall survival, uh, then overall survival should still be the key endpoint that we're looking at. So patients with relapse refractory disease or patients with ultra-high risk disease um, overall survival is, is an endpoint which is achievable and should be the primary goal. Um, however, if you move earlier in the disease pathway for standard risk and newly diagnosed patients, then I think it's inc- I, I don't think that's going to be possible. And PFS continues to be the endpoint uh, for the approval and the usage of drugs in that setting. I think the big major controversies continue to be around molecular uh, endpoints such as MRD, which we've discussed. It's still not accepted um, d- despite some of the work that we've been doing. And I think that we, we run the risk with cellular therapies to really hampen the approval of cellular therapies, which are so effective um, in terms of achieving MRD negativity. I think uh, maybe I'll throw a couple of things to you as a provocative thoughts and, and have you reflect on that. Uh, let's see if we can agree to this. Um, how about if I tell you, I don't think response rate should be a surrogate advantage. Would that be something you would be in favor of, or you would say response rate must be still used as a surrogate endpoint? So, so in my name, I would agree that response rate is no longer indicative. I think we have better... Uh, endpoints such as MRD than a response rate now? So in the solid tumour world, I think it sort of depends on the prevalence of your disease area, right? So if you have something that's super rare, like uh, tract fusions or even rarer NRG1 fusions, you know, response rate... Sanjay, can you define rare? Just, I'm trying just like, well, I mean, rare, you know, I think, what is rare? Yeah, I'm, you know, I think we're talking about, you know, a a... Uh, genotype which occurs at 0.5% or less of the population that we are are, are looking at. So these are really rare uh, occurrences, you know, a case that you're going to see once every six months. Okay, that, that sort of rare case, right? So, y- you know, response is part of the package because it's the response rate, the duration of response and the progression-free survival in a single-arm study. I think that will... Uh, define what you're talking about because we're never going to be able to do a randomized study in this super rare population. They just just won't the patients won't exist, right? To Got be it. able to do this. Okay. How about if I tell you another point? So we talk about response rate. How about if I tell you that progression-free survival should never be used as a surrogate endpoint ever, unless accompanied by quality of life measurements. I, th- I think that's that's laudable, but not realistic, right? So y- we have to do quality of life measurements, but we just spent fifteen minutes trashing them, right? <laughs> Saying that they were they were just rubbish, right? So yeah, we we can do quality of life uh, assessments, but we have be- we need to do better quality of life assessments than the ones than the tools that we currently have. Yeah, I agree that PFS has to be accompanied by QOL, but just because your QOL isn't any better doesn't necessarily mean that you can ignore the PFS. I mean, if your PFS, you know, hazard ratio is 0.5, yeah, I'll buy that, even if the QOL isn't better. I'll have to tell you, uh, it's actually a topic I've been trying to tape a podcast on, and I'm not going to lie, I can't find the right guest. This is true story. It's a really tough one. QOL is, is a really tough one to get right. Yeah, because it's just to your point, it's just like you want to bring somebody who is an expert in the area, but also, uh, and it's, uh, there's a lot of folks who claim that, but I haven't, um, I haven't found the right person for quality of life. So what should we end up with? Any parting comments? I mean, I think uh, this was very lively and, and a lot of things to think about. Um, if I put on my listener hat, what I've learned is, A, we cannot always depend on overall survival. We have to have an open mind based on the disease and the situation. Uh, number two is, look, I mean, the future is heading into molecular 
molecular monitoring, whether we like it or not, this is what the future is. And and frankly, 10 years ago, you know, uh, much of the advances we have today would have been a dream 10 years ago. So, but I wanna make sure each of you get an opportunity to address anything I forgot to ask and any additional comments. So Rakesh, why don't you start first? Yeah, thanks. So, so, so I think it's about putting the patient in front of you and remembering what we're doing and, and what we're after. So, so the key things is that we wanna make our patient feel better and to live longer. And any surrogate endpoints that we're going to pursue, we have to be confident that you're gonna achieve those. So, so for me, it's about making sure we're not doing any harm with toxic drugs, which may impair uh, the overall survival of the patient as the key thing, and making sure that we are only using the most effective treatments, which are likely to do well in terms of quality of life and in terms of how long that the patient may live for. Sanjay? Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, we have to do all of that. And, you know, we have to use the technology that we have to work out who needs the treatment, uh, who needs additional treatment, and who can get away with standard treatment. Uh, you know, I think in solid tumors, we look a lot over our shoulder to what these guys in the heme world are doing, because a lot of their technology with with uh, MRD, et cetera, is going to come through within the solid tumor field. And so we have to pick up their mistakes and uh, try and get them right and, uh, you know, make sure that we can implement the science into the way it should be. But I think the take home message is that there's no one optimal endpoint for everything. There's no Lord of the Rings, right, which is power over everything. We've got to use a different endpoint for a different clinical scenario uh, to get the right treatment for our patients. He malignancy folks don't do any mistakes. What kind of rubbish is he saying? What is that? Yeah, well, we're perfect. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Well, I, I've enjoyed this a lot. I Every time I tape a podcast like this, I feel I'm learning uh, a lot from you. I, I couldn't be really thankful enough for you taking time and uh, of your schedule. We're taping this actually when it's a little bit uh, in the evening in the UK and it's... Um, uh, early in, well, it's midday in Chicago. And I have to tell you that one of my dreams have been always to learn how to speak in a British accent, because I would sound just very sophisticated. And, uh, and like, whatever you say, just sounds authoritative immediately. Come and spend three months with me, Chaddy. I, I, I would love to. I would love to. Well, uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for spending time on your Sunday and look forward to uh, seeing you in person at some point. Uh, I'm going to, uh, Rakesh, are you going to be at Ash? Yeah, I'll, I'll be at Ash. I'm going to see you at Ash and we'll do Perfect. a selfie and we'll make sure we t we send it to Saurabh Jeha. He, he claims to be a physician, but we all know he's just a radiologist. We all know he's a slightly dodgy he, physician. Why do you guys still talk to him? Like his, he left the UK. What's, what's the, look, we need to trash him a little bit. I know. We're bonded for life. Uh, having oh. spent six years in medical school with this guy sharing flats, we're now bonded for life. <laughs> <laughs> it's so nice to see you. Great. Awesome. Okay, everyone, I want to thank you for listening to this show. Thank you so much for your support. And if you are a loyal listener to this show, do not forget to email me, text me, and demand the amazing, beautiful, excellent Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast t-shirt so you can style it, take a picture with it, and post it on Twitter and social media. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and you learned a few things about surrogate endpoints and really the nuances. These are It's very important to understand these nuances. One hat does not fit all if you think one hat fits all, then let's just be robots and we don't need to exercise clinical judgment and we can have the robot decide whatever treatment we need to actually give to patient X, Y, and Z. I hope you enjoyed it and don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate the show and write a brief review. By doing this and by referring your friends and colleagues to Healthcare Unfiltered, more people like you will actually find this podcast. You can watch all of these on my YouTube channel. And don't forget to email me or text me or tweet me your suggestions about any future episodes. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Maya Angelou. If you don't like something, change it. If you can't change it, change your attitude. Until next time, take care.